Thank you, Angela and Emmy. That was beautiful. Please turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. We're going to be studying verses 97 through 104. This is the longest psalm we have, so it should be easy to find. Psalm 119. I want to begin today and have you examine your heart a bit by considering this question. How teachable are you? If you were to honestly look at this area in your life, maybe rate on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 base number system and all that, what would you say about yourself? This This week I read a good article about being teachable by an author and pastor named Stephen Blandino, and he's in Texas. He says there are three aspects to being teachable that need to be considered when we are thinking about this. First, we need to ask ourselves whether or not we are curious about life. When we're curious, we're committed to seek knowledge, and we're not satisfied with what we know. Curious people keep learning outside of school. And they want to know why things work, how they work, why are things that way. To be teachable, we need to be curious or else we fall back into the same paradigms and patterns and might I even say ruts in life. Secondly, Blondino says, teachable people have a willingness to be coached by other people. Are we open to hearing new things from people who know more than we do? about certain subjects? Can we accept valuable ideas and insights and feedback from people acknowledging that we're not the smartest people in the room? Do we listen and ask questions of people more than we talk? Thirdly, he says, in order to be teachable, we need to be willing to be corrected. This is probably the hardest one for all of us since none of us like to be confronted or told that we're wrong. How we respond to correction will determine, though, our capacity for learning in a given situation. If we react with defensiveness or we try to justify our position instead of receiving and being open to correction, we ultimately may not be very teachable people. Now go back and think about that question I asked you again. How teachable are you? Blandino has given substantive concepts to consider when we're assessing our willingness to be taught by others. Our openness to new ideas and receptivity to change has a corollary on our growth as people. Now, this is, of course, nowhere more true than on our relationship with God. And I would argue that if we're not teachable people in the world, we're not teachable people to the Almighty. How can we say that we're teachable to what God has for us if we're not really teachable to those around us? But if we're curious and we're coachable and we're open to correction, then that is true across the board. When we're closed to learning, when we think we have life all wired in, then not even the Holy Spirit is going to get through. Today we read part of a psalm which shows how open the writer is to God and his teaching. It's part of a larger poem, the whole of which is dedicated to the learning and application of God's truth to us. 
And this teaching today inspires us that when we love God's law, it makes us people of depth who can readily navigate through life. So let's read together Psalm 119, 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let's pray. Oh Father, today we are your people, and we long to be instructed by you. Thank you for your word and for these very personal words that we, that we get to read and learn from today. Amen. This psalm is 176 verses long, and God is addressed or referred to in each verse. It is written as an acrostic poem, and all the verses are divided into 22 equal stanzas made of eight lines each. Each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, of which there are 22. 22 letters, 22 stanzas. Tradition holds that King David made up this poem to teach his son Solomon the Hebrew alphabet and simultaneously God's law. The truth is, we don't know who the author is, or nor is there a title. When you read it, and I encourage you to actually spend some time this week and in the next few weeks delving into it, you'll see it as a personal prayer of someone who loves the Lord deeply. The running theme of the entire psalm is the word of the Lord. And there are synonyms which are found in almost every stanza. Words like commands, decrees, laws, judgments, precepts, promises, statutes, and ordinances. In what we just read, there were six of those. Now, while we may see the same words in different place in the psalm, there's not a redundancy of thought. In this, the author shows us the richness of God's communication to us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this poem. Unlike some other psalms, he says, 119 is not and does not pretend to be a sudden outpouring of the heart. It is a pattern, a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch through long, quiet hours for the love of the subject and for delight in leisurely discipled craftsmanship. What we examine today is the 13th stanza, which begins with the letter Mem. In these eight verses, everything we read is positive. There are no trials. There's no trauma. There's nothing being asked of the Lord. These words are full of testimony and praise. It rather feels like an intermission of a play. A break in the action to take a breath, to remember who we are, to be refreshed. 
the psalmist begins by saying how much he loves the law. It is his meditation all day long. Here we see the heart of the writer, and it makes us think about what we love as well as how we love. Do we spend time with the object of our desire because we are in love? Or do we fall in love because we spend extensive focused time with the object of our desire? It's a bit of both, I think. However it came about, the author has come to a place of loving God's revealed word to his people. Notice that the whole time he speaks in the present tense and is exclaiming to the Lord himself, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. The author has meditated on God's word because he loves it and through that meditation has come to love it more. You'll see that the first verse is our jumping off point because when we love God's word, it helps us to navigate through the world. So let's see how that happens. Number one, loving God's word makes us wiser than our enemies. There are some sobering ideas for us to think about here. First off, no matter how nice we are or how good we are, we have enemies. It's a strong word, but basically it means people who don't like us. Maybe worse, it means that they are actively trying to hurt us in some way. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't like us. Most of the time I feel like I hear, well, she doesn't like me because she's jealous. Do you hear that? I hear that. The truth is, who knows, right? Why some people don't care for us. It seems like kind of a waste of time to try to figure out why, unless we really care about that relationship and we're teachable. Maybe we've been rude. Maybe we remind them of someone awful to them. Sometimes people don't like us because we don't like them. And they know it. Sometimes they don't like us because of what we stand for. Sometimes that's our faith. In the Old Testament, enemies were considered to be those who did not revere or walk with Yahweh. If there's someone in our life who hates God, that's a problem for us. And we cannot forget that all of those who belong to God have an enemy who works against us in our attempt to know him and to be holy. And regularly attacks us for our faith. Just like Satan was attacking Jesus in the wilderness, we know that he also tests us. In any battle, then, it is imperative that we try to outwit the enemy. The psalmist's reality is that God's commandments make him wiser than his enemies. That is his strategic plan. When Jesus was in the desert being tempted by the devil, he used scripture to beat him back. Three times Jesus quoted from God's word to defeat his enemy. In his human life, he had studied the scriptures and knew them well. We need to be wiser than those who try to destroy our faith or those who try to talk us out of it or else we're going to lose the battle. Knowing God's truth gives us an advantage when we're attacked because then we don't succumb to the jabs and the taunts and the outright lies. God's word always can be with us. The more we love it and absorb its truth, the more we will be ready to face those who oppose us. When Paul spoke in Ephesians about the armor of God, he calls the word of God the sword of the spirit, which emphasizes its true power, both to defend against the thrusts of the enemy, but also to attack error and falsehood in the world around us. 
So let's stop and think about this truth in our lives. Do we love God's word in such a way that it makes us wiser than our enemies? Number two, loving God's word gives us more understanding than our teachers. In verses 99 and 100, the psalmist is declaring God to be a superior teacher than any human one. This is not meant to demean those who teach or those who have brought him up. Rather, it is to offer praise to the father who is the best one to instruct him. I think this is a fantastic thought for us today. How I take it to mean is, in our lives with God, we should not rely solely on those who lead in his body to be the only times that we open the word. The writer here is saying that he has spent time and study on his own. And because of that, he has a deep understanding. In so doing, he doesn't need to just listen to someone else's thoughts about God. Because he has taken time himself to know God. And this choice has made him learn it on his own. He's a very teachable spirit. I'm grateful for those who taught me about God. I had nuns who helped me memorize the Lord's Prayer. Sunday school teachers who showed me the stories of the faith. To my youth pastor who discipled me in the way of Jesus. To the countless sermons that I've been privileged to hear. And the Bible study lessons thoughtfully prepared by those who made the word come alive. And none of us would be here today without those who teach and lead. But all of us have to come to the point where we learn for the sake of knowing God on our own. All of those pieces together help make up our faith. Clearly, I believe teaching is important. I'm up here doing it right now. But there's something so good about just taking time by ourselves to be with the Lord and to know him. Not just accepting what is presented, but really digging in to see what God uniquely has for us each day. Having our own relationship with God and with his word, as well as in the community of faith, is what keeps us alive in him. Because if we stop going or if something is wrong, we still have this with us. Here again, we see the word meditation. Your decrees are my meditation. I meditate on your, day, on your law all day long. It has such a connotation of being steeped, being immersed, not content just to hear about God, not satisfied with once or twice a week a meal of the word, but truly seeking the Lord to belong to him fully. So let's stop and consider this truth for our lives. Do we open God's word on our own, learning from the God himself in addition to being taught by others? Are we really steeping ourselves, immersing ourselves in meditating on God's law? Number three, loving God's word compels us more than the world. In verses 101 and 102, there are two pictures that we can relate to. You might see them differently. I'm going to tell you how I see them. First, he says, he holds his feet from every evil so that he might keep God's word. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's the Lord's path, and there's the path of unrighteousness. 
And maybe we're tempted to go down the wrong path. So we need to stop and hold our feet. Because we can't walk while we're bent down, holding on to the very things that take us places. This week in our senior study, we were talking about the nature of temptation from the book of James. All of us are tempted. All of us have places in our lives we cannot go because it will lead us straight to sin. All of us know the places where we literally have to hold our feet until we're able to choose to go where God is leading us. That is part of keeping the commandment of the Lord. There's a deviation from God's law that will lead us to sin. And sometimes we just need to stop and bend down and hold our feet until we can make his word be the path that we take instead of the temptation that we want. The second piece here is kind of about how our body is positioned. He says, I do not turn away from your ordinances. Right now as a family, we're watching a lot of middle school volleyball really fun. And one of the things that I learned is that where the ball go, where the ball will go depends. Let me start this over. (laughs) One of the things that we've learned is that where the ball will go depends on the way your body is faced. So it's imperative for us to watch our form and see where we're turned. If we want the ball to go in the direction that we're aiming, that's kind of the picture that I see. Where we're turned is where our life will go. The psalmist says that he will not turn away from God's word. He knows where he wants to go and will not turn in the wrong direction from that. So let's stop and think about what this is saying to us. Are you needing to hold your feet right now from going down a path that is not righteous and not where the Lord wants you to be? Have you aimed and missed because you were actually turned away and didn't know it? Number four, loving God's word is a sweet endeavor that gives us understanding. In verse 103, the writer declares that God's word is pleasing to his palate, like honey in his mouth. Now, this is another vivid picture given to us. I was thinking about the nature of food. I was thinking about how there are things that we absolutely cannot abide to eat. Even some of the most adventuresome among us has something that will not work for us to consume. But there are also things that are so lovely to us that we just want to savor. That just is so nice for us that they're a treat. Because they feel so, so good in our mouth. This is one way to think about these verses. The psalmist loves God's word so much he wants to enjoy it and savor it and partake of it slowly so that time will be extended. How sweet are your words, God. Most of us have had the experience of not enjoying a certain food and then on subsequent tries, maybe it becomes a favorite. I was thinking how God's word sustains our lives, but there's pleasure that we have from taking it. Sometimes we have to learn That God's word is delightful and time spent with him is worth it. Because our brains are wired to continue to do what is pleasant and to stop us from doing something we don't like or is boring. I think there's a lesson here for us. How can God's word become sweet to us so that we keep partaking? I'm always inspired by those who earnestly read the Bible. 
Mark's grandfather would read it cover to cover every year. And one time I talked about it, and he started choking up, and he said, it's such a cherished time with the Lord to read it every year. And I feel like I see the enormity of God's picture and his plan and his revelation for his people. And we talked about at his funeral about how his familiarity with the word had well prepared him to meet God face to face. Along the way, the word became a very sweet reality for him. The psalmist ends this stanza by talking about what he hates, which is fitting because he started this by talking about what he loves. He loves God's law, and he hates every false way. He can't stand anything that pretends to be a true path for him to take. So let's stop and think about if God's word is sweet to us, or it's something that we don't really partake in very much. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British pastor and author, writes five chapters on this psalm in one of his books. Listen to one of his many exhortations. I beseech you to let your Bibles be everything to you. Carry this matchless treasure with you continually and read it and read it and read it again and again. Turn to its pages day and night. Let its narratives mingle with your dreams. Let its precepts color your lives. Let its promises cheer your darkness. Let its divine illumination make glad your life. As you love God, love this book, which is the book of God and the God of books, as it has been rightly called. My prayer is that in our lives that we would be the most teachable to God who created us and who longs to shape us by his very word. May we be curious about it, not thinking that we know everything about it and ignore it. May we be coached by the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible, accepting new ideas and truths and insights for us. And may we be corrected. By the Lord daily, confessing our sin and making sure our feet are on the correct path. Let us pray.